coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. More Netflix discussion. Our time will come pulled from the Shanghai opening film slot. Some more Godzilla uh, casting news. Uh, Beyond Beauty director uh, dies in an unfortunate accident. Hawaii brother sues a Weibo user for spreading harmful rumors. And our films this week, Taiwan comedy, DD Stream, and Tom Cruise in The Mummy. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk in the not-so-sunny uh, Hong Kong, because they're in the middle of a typhoon right now, is Mr. Kevin Ma. What? What's that, Paul? <laughs> I, I can't hear you over the wind. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm indoors. What's up? <laughs> Hi, everybody. How's it going, sir? You're staying dry, I assume, because you're inside. Well, I'm staying dry because I only live 10 minutes from the office. So I got home very quickly. Uh, the ty- the typhoon signal uh, hoisted towards the end of workday, which thanks to Mr. Lee and his and his wonderful shield. Um, and uh, so I've been spending uh, some time at home working, of course. I don't get time off because, you know, I run uh, a, a news site that pretty much runs 24 hours a day. Um, and I got some translation work, so it's not really a night off for mm. for me here. So yeah, it's another typical weeknight here in Hong Kong. But it's a night in, and that's always nice, right? It's always a night in in my life, yeah. Paul. I'm always <laughs> I nights out are more rare than nights in, you know. Yes, I do understand. Um, you know, for me, a night in is uh, a bit of normalcy. As as we were talking about before the show. Uh, when I went out to see this week's choice for the West Green film, which I kind of didn't want to see, but it was kind of one among three options that we're showing because we, me and my wife, actually had a night out, which is something we rarely get because of the, of the little ones. So we had an opportunity, and I was like, "We gotta, we gotta go. We gotta, we gotta seize this because this never happens." And um, so we had a, had a nice evening out. But I mean, normally for us, our no- we were driving back, and we're like, "This is so not normal for us," because you know, usually nine thirty at night, we are we've put the little one to bed and we are on the couch, you know, scrolling through the Netflix queue. And as I as I mentioned before in a previous show, like the past the the past couple of weeks has been consumed each evening with uh, you know Terrace House Boys and Girls in the City, which I'm happy to say we have finally finished episode hey. 46 over the weekend, and now I feel this gaping hole. <laughs> In my life, <laughs> because it's like I look forward to that every evening, and now it's like I'm, I, you know, I just scroll over the Netflix queue to Aloha State, and it's like I'm waiting for it to update. I'm like, come on, give me, give me the, give me the, give me the third part already, which is supposedly coming, you know, I think later this week or uh, early next week, sometime in in June, I think I saw an announcement for. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a fun ride, and again, I thank you, Mr. Ma, for getting me. 
and my wife addicted uh, on that show. And wow, it I mean, I, not to get into spoilers of that or anything for people who haven't watched it or who aren't to the end, but I have to agree with you now <laughs> because we <laughs> were talking about before how, um, you know, I really like the Aloha State. I like the kids there. But by the end of Boys and Girls in the City, I mean, there's some crazy stuff going on. And it really gets interesting. So I kind of do understand the, you know, the, the, the trend, if it if that's the word for it, where people are saying that they think Aloha State's a little bit boring by comparison. I mean, sure, we've got Yusuke's catfish, which was, you know, a, a very sad and tragic moment. But uh, some of the <laughs> stuff that happens in the end, I mean, I, it, I, I it almost felt staged in a way. Because it's, but then I was thinking about, it, I was like, yeah, you know, if you're, if you're on a show like this, why wouldn't you conspire, you know, and, and you know, and, and try and do some things. They just weren't very smart about it by the end. But, um, um, you know, I, I'm kind of hoping that, um, he wasn't my favorite character, but he was probably in, I'd say he's in the top three or four. Um, I get, but I guess he's got the award for the longest running character. And that is the character of Armin, who's. He's like half Iranian, half Japanese um, by descent, right. but he's from Hawaii, and he was there for like nine months on the Boys and Girls in the City show. And I'm kind of hoping, I'm like, well, he's from Hawaii. He was supposed to be going back, so maybe he'll, you know, do a cameo um, in the Aloha in one of the Aloha State episodes. Um, I think that'd be cool. But I really would like to see at some point, sort of a, you know, kind of a reunion of cast members and where are they now what are they doing that kind of thing uh, um they kind of did a mini version of that um briefly towards the end of um uh, boys and girls in the city um but you know it, it's like i'm i'm so interested in the behind the scenes stuff and the kind of where are they now stuff that kind of stuff and you just you mentioned they did a movie right for the very first one as kind of a wrap-up they did a movie um, after the end of the first season, which is ex- essentially it's just the continuation of the series. As in, they brought in the actually the first season also has a member who stayed for the entire time, mm. um, and he he's now working as a bit actor, but um, he was the most you know popular character because I mean he was just one of those guys who just wouldn't leave the house, and he sort of um, he star he's the anchor, and he let the um, the film version, which is this extended version, they have five new members and him, and they're in the house again, and it's just two hours of the same stuff hmm. uh, essentially. But in the first season's house, not the new house, there's no connection between that uh, film and the second season, which hmm. is uh, Boys and Girl in the City. Uh, so you have to watch the first season to understand, I guess, the, why that character is still there. Or I think it's one or two characters. Um, there's one character who shows up, has a cameo in all the seasons, and her name is Sena. Yes. That's the yeah. model. Yeah. She is a legend in, yeah. in, in Taryn's house. Um, she and, and you can tell by her character, she just pops, she just stands out by the way she speaks to people. And there was a whole scandal where she might have misreported her age and everything. But she also stayed until the end of the, the first season, from beginning to the end. Uh, of the the first season um so you have these so i'm surprised i haven't seen that that male character from the first season show up but Sena because she is so legendary that they set up cameos right, right <laughs> later yeah. on yeah and it's really cool um i actually bought a, a dvd of the first season in singapore but it's not english subtitled and i think they don't have the entire seasons i'm trying to watch I'm, i only rewatched the first couple of episodes and mm. it brought back you know 
good good times because I watched it without subtitles when I first watched it. So right. so it's good to get some what, what people are saying. But if you look at the Instagram of some of the members, especially the ones from Boys and Girls in the City, you see that the, these guys actually still hang out in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, and the Aloha State members, when they visit Japan, they also would visit. Uh, they also hang out with Boys and uh, Girls in the City members. So sometimes you see Instagram, you will see them, you know, their photos together. Yeah, very cool, very cool. I did send uh, a message to Netflix kind of saying, oh, you know, we're really hooked on this series. Please find it, you know, find a way to get the rights to do the first season and put it out there for us. Um, oh, the first season is on uh, Netflix in Japan because, yeah. I mean, it's a, whole, cause it's a collaboration between Fuji and Netflix, and Fuji is still behind the production of the show. Um, so, so yeah, um, uh, they, they have it in Japan. Hopefully they can get the rights for the rest of the world. Yeah. yeah. All right. Again, uh, we're, we apologize for our opining uh, about this show, but do check it out if you haven't had a chance to see it because um, it's fun. Let us get into our news proper for this week. So I will throw the talking stick back over to Kevin with this week's news. Here at the news desk, um, I think, Paul, you want to talk some more about Netflix? Yeah, so this is becoming more of the the East Netflix, West Netflix show, right? Because every <laughs> week we've got Netflix news. Um, but this is a little bit of news, not directly movie-related per se, but um, Netflix has had a couple cancellations um, and high-profile cancellations, um, starting off earlier with a show called The Get Down, which I did not see. I believe it's kind of a musical-oriented um, kind of program, but... Um, the one that I did watch, Sense8, has also been canceled after the second season, and that is the show that is done by the Wachowski siblings. Um, and, it, you know, as I was reading through some of the articles on this and following a couple discussions in some groups, some people have started to question whether this is pointing to a chink in the sort of distribution model armor of Netflix showing that perhaps it's not doesn't have the ability to be quite as innovative and progressive and moving away from traditional models of production distribution as we originally had thought. Um, I was particularly surprised because I think that, uh, especially with a show like Sense8, it seemed to be rather popular. Um, it was well received in terms of you know critics. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't um, super highly rated, but overall that critics seem to think it was well done and, and kind of original. But at the same time, um, in discussions with Kevin, he said, you know, a show like this is probably super expensive to get out there. And um, in one of the articles I read, uh, one of the executives at Netflix basically said something along the lines of, we need to be canceling more stuff so that we can put more stuff out there. Which, you know, he said something like, you know, that we, we've got too many hits, which kind of seems illogical, you know, that we've got so many hits that, okay, we've got to start canceling some of the good stuff to try to throw more stuff at the wall, right, and see what sticks. Um, and for me, that's more of a traditional kind of, you know, uh, network television attitude where you've got stuff that has a following, but you want something that's perhaps not quite as expensive, cheaper to produce, and can make you more money. And I think that's kind of what pushes us into the whole, you know, reality TV dominating everything with things like Survivor and The Voice and and all of that sh stuff, which is very cheap to produce and can still garner ratings, right? Um, 
you know, and I don't think in the long run this is going to affect things like Netflix original movies quite as much because those can be one-offs and they can keep doing those. So this is really more targeted at um, some of the, you know, original series that I guess they're they're looking at doing. But it's still, you know, it makes me nervous because it makes me think, well, they're probably, they, you know, maybe they'll be less progressive with, um, you know, taking risks and taking chances on things if, if this kind of culture gets pushed forward. I mean, Kevin, what, what would be your take on this? Oh, I think I think you're kind of misreading it a bit. Paul, I think because uh, so the get down is um, by Baz Luhrmann, who is behind Moulin Rouge, and it was their big get. They thought they could spend a hundred. They spent a hundred twenty million dollars on this ten episode show, uh, twelve episode, I think, um, and it's apparently been a flop, both critically and viewership. And viewership wise, it hasn't really garnered the the following that. Uh, cheaper shows have done for example uh, 13 reasons why making a murderer stranger things those were shows that done done with um lesser known names uh and lesser known uh behind the scenes talent whereas um sensei is insanely expensive to produce they don't they don't they didn't review the cost but you have the wachowski siblings who are very very established names and of course so they would get paid plenty of money and then you got um a, a essentially they shoot on location for all the for the yeah, entire that's, show so that's all shooting over the place. At, yeah, so that's shooting what eight different countries, eight different locations for a whole season. So, and also, yes, it has a very devoted following, but apparently, it didn't get the the viewership or the ratings that Netflix wanted. Um, so, Netflix, when they started out with the original series, they got these big names behind the shows. House of Cards is also very expensive to shoot, but you know, it has the viewership and the buzz to prove it. Right, every season has been. Is, is, and it's gotten awards, whereas Sense Eight and and The Get Down, they haven't gotten the award love that that you know that would beat rival HBO, and they're very expensive to produce. So I think what um, the executive was saying is that we need more experimental shows that 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 get the buzz going, like Stranger Things, like Thirteen Reasons Why. We don't need to maybe we don't need to spend so much money to get these big names and and these insanely expensive productions. We could maybe get the same kind of we could get more buzz for cheaper when we experiment a little more. So that's what I think he's saying. So it clearly shows that Netflix experiment with you know getting prestige it, it it's bleeding money. They're bleeding money essentially. That's why they can't they can't possibly find a budget to continue Sense Eight, uh, even despite this whole petition that's been started by the fans. Um, and and it's kind of it's worrisome because um, the whole idea is that Netflix gives Netflix and cable, and they're supposed to give these prestige filmmakers sort of the uh, freedom to make the shows they want. And it's supposed to be a new frontier in television production. Um, and now it's you realize that maybe it's also not the most profitable profitable way to go. Um, I wonder what Netflix is going to do from here because it, it, you know imagine all these art house and and you know altairs being left out in the wild and no one to produce their films and no one to produce their TV shows. Is is this what is happening? Are they have they also gotten too expensive? Have we given these guys too much financial and and artistic freedom? Um, yeah, I think everything seems to be up in the air. Um, um, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, they, not every show can be hit, but you know, when a show misfires, like the way the get down has, I watched half, I watched part one of the season and I can tell why it's so expensive. It's a period show and boss Lerman and it's a very ambitious production. Um, but it doesn't look it. That's a problem. It, it, they spent all this money, but it's hard to tell where all the money went to. Um, 
unlike something like Sense Eight, where you know you feel like every dollar is on a screen because of that insanely, insanely uh, uh, complicated shoot. I mean, of course, Game of Thrones on HBO also costs a ton of money, but the thing is, they have the the the, the ratings, they have the uh, the viewership. Um, I mean, they have the buzz and they have the awards uh, to to back it up. Whereas honestly, Sense Eight. Um, you really don't hear much about the show. I mean, the show is fine. I've watched most of the first season already, and it is very risk-taking, and it is a breakthrough, I think, for uh, LGBTQ um, characters on TV. But in terms of getting the mainstream acceptance that need to justify the cost, I, I don't think it's really there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm curious as to how they really look at something being a hit overall financially if it's based on the sort of opening weekend initial amount of streaming that happens or if they look at with say the first month or something because with a show like you know this on a platform like uh a netflix it's not it's not even like an hbo right because you know there you've got the the run of this of the show in sort of set time slots and then you can do some hbo go i guess making it on demand for a little while, and then you've also got the sort of aftermarket sales when those things hit DVD, and and so you've got these different markets. But with something like Sense8, where it's just kind of there, and it's just kind of sitting on Netflix, right? Um, I just wonder if it's like, you know, like movies. It's like, okay, if it doesn't do this many downloads in the opening weekend when we drop all the episodes, then it's a failure, right? I don't think it's about the opening. I think something a, 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 a platform like Netflix and Amazon. You know, when Louis C.K. Uh, self-funded his show Horace and Pete, he said that he lost a ton of money on it because he self-funded the show and he only made it available for download uh, on his website uh, for sale. Um, and he said he lost a ton of money on it. But the idea is that for him, he would turn a profit eventually because he has this property. He has this thing that he made and it's worth money uh, by itself. And and eventually he will make his money back. So for Netflix, I think it's the same thing. But for them, uh, so I think these streaming platforms they rely on social media and they rely on what, how what people are talking, whether people are talking about it, because that kind of buzz drives subscription. It's not about the opening week or opening month. I think it's about in the long run how many people will subscribe to Netflix to watch these shows, and if they see oh, 13 Reasons Why is getting so much buzz on social media. That means, you know, people are talking about it. That means people, you know, will think about subscribing. It may draw us more subscribers. Stranger Things, same thing. I mean, it was drawn out. I mean, the buzz was drawn all the way up to what the, uh, what was the, the Jimmy Fallon? Was it the Emmys or the Golden Globes? I don't um, remember, yeah. I think it was the Emmys. I mean, it got to the point where he put it in the opening sequence. I mean, no one's doing parodies of The Get Down. No yeah. one's doing parodies of Sense8, right? So it shows, so, so for them, it's all about the buzz because the buzz drives subscribers hmm. viewership to them doesn't quite matter so much it's whether the buzz will draw people to go to netflix and they think that making a murderer draws people to netflix because people keep talking about it same for stranger things but you know not these so what are these so it's all about it's all about um uh, uh um these i guess that's the best way to quantify a popularity of a show these days you know it's it's all about you know whether people are talking about it or not and unfortunately you know to get down and sensei are probably well with house of cards they're probably the most expensive shows on netflix at the moment and they just have to have to stop the bleeding all right well if you have any thoughts on these cancellations 
Whether you think they're justified or not, please drop us a line and let us know. All right, next piece of news. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I, I, I reported that um, Anhui's Our Time Will Come will be um, opening the Shanghai Film Festival this week. Unfortunately, that is no longer happening. Uh, last week, uh, the Shanghai Film Festival suddenly announced that um, uh, another film is going to be opening the festival without saying that, oh, Our Time Will Come is no longer opening the festival. Uh, the film is still in competition, um, but the film has also been withdrawn from the New York uh, Asian Film Festival. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, China Line is still releasing it um, on July 6th. Um, no reason was given, even though there are some rumors, and I can't confirm those rumors, that it's possible, be, uh, that's pos that possibly because the involvement of Dini Yip. Uh, Dini Yip has a major supporting role in the film. She plays Joshun's mother uh, in this war drama. And apparently um, there's a lot of, because Dini Yip was uh, very open about supporting the Umbrella Movement, uh, even in saying a song, you know, be on a song about it. And she also openly um, uh, campaigned for Demosisto, which is, uh, if you remember last week, I talked about um, Joshua Wan's, uh, the film Superpower versus, was it Joshua versus Superpower or Teenager, Teenager versus, versus Superpower? Superpower, yeah. Right, the Joshua Wan documentary, and, and Demosisto is the political party that he co-founded. So during the election last year for, for Legislative Council, Dini Yip openly campaigned, um, helped uh, for the political party so that could be the reason even though it's really sloppy because i mean it's not like they just added dini yip into the film last week right i mean she's in the marketing material they, i they I, digitally, I translated they digitally inserted her with a green screen right i, I translated <laughs> these material a few months ago and dini yip is clearly in the film i mean we know that she's in the film for months but suddenly they're like uh wait a minute where what, what, is, what is she doing in the film and then they decided i who knows no idea why i can't confirm if that's the truth. But anyway, the film will play next Saturday in, at the Shanghai Film Festival. The screening is sold out, but people did manage to get tickets. So it's a public screening, as far as I know. Um, and it's still in competition to premiere there. And the film is still coming out on July 6th in Hong Kong, July 6th in North America, and also July 6th in Taiwan. Supposedly July 1st in China, but not sure if that is going to change. So I, I, I understand the political ramifications if they're pulling it because of that in Shanghai but why do you you mentioned it's being pulled in from the New York Film Festival too right it's it was uh they they announced the schedule last week and the film was not on it um i'm not sure why i mean the thing is um the china line distribution uh the release was always always planned for um uh july june 30th i think which is before the festival starts but they changed the date, and now it's July 6th, which, is, which will be right in the middle of the festival. So it's not like people won't be able to see the film during the festival because you know it, was, it will still be playing in American cinemas, but maybe not at the New York Asian Film Festival. But no idea why. Um, at least uh, I haven't gotten a clear, clear um, explanation from the organizers. Um, and um, they, haven't, they didn't announce it formally, so maybe... Um, there will be a press release about it, maybe. I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, hopefully we can get some more information, and we will let you all know. All right, next. Um, Zhang Ziyi. Uh, she uh, is confirmed uh, to... 
uh, be in the uh, next Godzilla film. This is the American Godzilla series, not the Japanese Godzilla series. Uh, she will be in the legendary uh, MonsterVerse uh, in Godzilla King of the Monsters. This is the new film in the uh, the, the you know legendary's uh, monster universe, which includes King Kong and Godzilla, and I don't know. Who else is going to be in there? Everyone, everyone has a has a has a universe now. So I have no idea who's in whose universe. You know, I think I think Paul, you and I, I think we're in the uh, the, the um, East Screen West Screen universe, right? Yeah, Cinematic that's right. Universe. <laughs> right. And I don't know who we're going to pull in. Maybe we can pull in Ross from Love and Shade Film. Udine Faris from Festival could be in the <laughs> could be in the East Screen West Screen yeah. universe. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but anyway. Um, she will have a major role. Um, it's set a few years after the events of the last Godzilla film, which apparently is in that universe. So Godzilla exists now, and King Kong is going to be in there, although not this film. This is going to be a continuation of the 2014 film. And um, her character, uh, quoting the story from Variety, her character is a significant figure within the covert monarch organization established in that film. Actually, I remember Monarch being established in Kong, Skull Island, right? I don't remember Monarch being mentioned in Godzilla. Uh, I think it might have been um, briefly mentioned, and but I don't think we saw anybody from the Monarch organization. But yeah, well, I think the idea, is that Ken, the, the idea is that the Ken Watanabe character is supposed to be from Monarch, right? I think so, yeah. And, and, I guess. And if, if going by, you know... I, if you haven't seen Kong, Skull Island, uh, you know, throwing out a couple spoilers here, so cover your ears. Um, by the end credit scenes of Kong Skull Island, it looks like that, um, uh, what's her name? Jing Tian also gets, so maybe Jing Tian is like Zhang Zi's mom or something. <laughs> oh dear God! Well, you know? that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. This is gonna, this could possibly be the epic meetup between Zhang Ziyi and Jin Tang. Yeah, a matchup that nobody asked for, but it's okay. <laughs> it's gonna happen because <laughs> they haven't met on screen in a Chinese film. So this is it's time. It's yeah. time for Zhang Ziyi to meet Jin Tang. <laughs> And and poor Jin Tang is gonna, but actually it, the timeline doesn't work because Kong Skull Island takes place in the seventies, right? But the Godzilla, this Godzilla series takes place in, in contemporary time, right? That's why so I'm, I'm right. thinking that Jin Tang could maybe if she because if she's in Monarch early on, she could be like the mother or grandmother of Zhang Ziyi's character, right? Um, yeah, you know. I didn't realize there's nepotism going on in Monarch. <laughs> Well, it's a secret society, right? You got to keep it all in 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 house. Um, you know, okay, it's it's fine. Uh, I as I've said before, when you cast big name people in a Godzilla movie, if you're doing it as stunt casting, sure. But if you're going to give these long dramatic character arcs, we don't care. <laughs> we, we don't want to see humans unless they're being stomped on and eaten, right? Uh, this was part of the, I think part of the problem with uh, Kong Skull Island too is, you know, they had these they had these character arcs and people were like, no, we don't we don't care about these people that much. We want to see Kong smash. Um, so you know, I'm I'm very much looking forward to this. I'm very excited about this you know kind of universe that they're building as they build up to um, the Godzilla versus Kong movie, and again alluding back to what they hinted at in terms of 
the end credits scenes um, in Kong Skull Island, there's potentially more of the kaiju monster movies coming. The classic ones, you know, you know, you know who they are. Um, and so I'm looking forward to any and all of those that come out. But of course, part of the problem with these big universe building films is if, you know, is if a film tanks, then it kind of throws the whole concept of the universe building into question, at least from the financial production side of things. And that's something we're going to get a little bit into when I talk about uh, The Mummy uh, a bit later. But, you know, Kevin, I mean, we've talked about, for example, Shin Godzilla last year and some of the stuff that it did. I mean, are you a fan of sort of the U.S. take on these, or would you rather that the big monsters stay firmly rooted in Japanese cinema? Yeah, I really just wanted a Shin Godzilla sequel, not this this monster universe crap. I really don't... (laughs) I don't care. Like, okay, you're gonna have Godzilla go and beat other monsters. Go ahead, but let the Japanese do it. Jeez, I mean, I'm done with this whole like. They keep casting these huge stars in it, but they keep forgetting that it's we want to see the monsters. Yeah. Okay, like, like we want to see the monsters, and we just want to see the monsters. You know, I think Shin Godzilla sort of got it right because all the humans are pretty much have no backgrounds. And the and their life in revolve entirely around beating the monster, and it's about you know making fun of the um, the bureaucracy and about you know using the monster as sort of standing for something you know so it stands for Fukushima or the three eleven disaster the, the the government responds is supposed to, is a satire of that, and I like it that way. I don't want. You know, I don't want um, what's his name, Aaron Taylor Johnson, running around San Francisco trying to find his kids. I don't care. Godzilla, <laughs> just go fight something. Yes, Rice. indeed. I, I, I'm 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 on the page with you with that, but I can, you know, if they do it well enough, I can I can look beyond a little bit of it to to get to the you know to the big monster brawls. So, um, if you have thoughts on this, you know, uh, do let us know. Let us know if you like these U.S. remakes or if you think again they should be firmly left to Japanese productions. You know, where I think we all agree we love seeing that stuff. So, let us know what you think. All right, next, uh, some sad news coming up Taiwan. Um, Paul, have you seen the uh, documentary Beyond Beauty, uh, Taiwan from Above? I have not, no. Okay, so that film is an aerial documentary. came out a couple years ago, I think 2013 or 2014. Uh, the film is um, it's a documentary that um, is entirely shot above the skies of Taiwan. And the film is all about showing the natural environment of Taiwan and the natural beauty and and because you know it's it, we we nature documentaries are really are often literally down to earth you know they're down on the ground so it's kind of cool to see you know taiwan from sky and the film also actually uh, exposed a lot of um illegal contamination done by factories and talking about the the um the price that we pay for our civilization and for our industrial uh, development the film was a sensation in taiwan and the film um also won best documentary um earlier last week just like la- middle of last week director chim po lin uh, actually announced that he was going to make a sequel of the film um and he was going to shoot it in japan malaysia china taiwan and new zealand um, and that he was going to shoot the film, starting to shoot the film for about a year and a half and uh, release the film in 2019. Unfortunately, over the weekend, the, the director was on um, 
uh, I think he was on scouting trips um, or filming. It's not quite clear. Um, some say he was scouting. Some say he was filming. It's not quite clear. But anyway, he was going on a couple of trips around Taiwan, on helicopter trips around Taiwan on Saturday morning. Uh, but on his third flight, uh, his helicopter crashed. And unfortunately, him, his assistant, and the pilot all died in the crash. Um, so uh, the Chimpolin started his career um in uh, as a civil servant he worked for the highway department uh shooting highway construction projects from uh from above and he was also a, a aerial photography enthusiast uh he sold uh, some of his aerial photography to nature magazines and he's held uh exhibitions and he did this you know beyond beauty documentary of his own interests and did it partly out of his own pocket um so he's very enthusiastic about um, environmental causes in Taiwan and 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 getting the and getting you know talk about preservation and and um, and environmental causes. So it's it's quite sad that we won't get to see his vision um, realized with the sequel. Um, Chonghua Telecom uh, has agreed uh, yesterday, just yesterday, a day after the crash, agreed that they will fund the, the production for the rest of the rest of the production, uh, which just began. Um, and he said uh, the team behind the film will try and complete the film thanks to Zhonghua Telecom. So um, uh, hopefully um, Director Chi's uh, final dream will be realized. Um, there's a lot of sort of speculations around the crash. Um, apparently the weather was okay. There wasn't much wind. It wasn't a very windy day um, around the area. So it was hard. To, and there's no black box on board the helicopter. So it's going to be hard to determine the exact circumstance of how the accident happened. But there's some speculation online that, that, you know, Director Chi is not exactly, um, a very, uh, likable person among the industry, among the industrial circle, because of all the all the all the stuff he exposed in the first film, uh, so there's been some conspiracy conspiracy theory. I don't really want to get too deep into it, but there are some that kind of speculation going around. Anyway, I hope that you know we'll get to see Beyond Beauty two uh, someday. Hopefully, this is, his team will step up and and complete the film. Yeah, it's too bad. It uh, sounds like some very interesting work, and I definitely want to try and track down. Um you know, the first film. I really enjoy, especially like, you know, more and more there's there's groups doing these kind of aerial things. Um, I know that, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, do you, do you use Apple TV a lot? I do, I do. Yeah, they have these things now for, I don't know if it's for the old generation, but on the new generation Apple TVs, uh, the second generation, I think it's second generation, um, they have screen these savers. Things, the aerial screensavers, yeah, and they're just gorgeous to look at. I mean, we've got our set to the um, one for Hong Kong, and it's you know it's amazing. And also in the film we talked about last week, Joshua, teenager versus superpower, um, they did borrow um, some of the drone sequences that were done during the Occupy, which are just you know these the kind of slow moving over the crowd in you know Admiralty. And, you know, really just high definition and gorgeous to look at. Um, so I really do like that kind of stuff. So um, I'm very, very hopeful I can get a chance to see both of these. Yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Um, let me see if I can hook you up a copy. I have a Blu-ray, actually. And I think this is the type of film that I saw on a big screen. And it was mm. definitely worth watching on a big screen. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous film. And if if you, you know, someone that likes Taiwan as much as I do, it just, it's just a, you know, it just really shows you the beauty 
of that of that that island and um it's too bad that we won't get to see his vision um for the sequel because if you go to um my site um i actually did a production news on friday just pretty much like the day before um the accident and there is a uh, uh i embedded a um pre i guess a, a teaser uh, because he shot like a three minute teaser for to to attract more funding for the sequel, and there is a four uh, a teaser shot in 4K um, in that production story. We go to Asia in cinema, uh, so check out what what director she was trying to go for with with his sequel. Our final bit of news this week: um, Huahi Brothers has gone after a Weibo user. Yes, uh, Huahi Brothers. Um, I. I'm not sure if we talked about this, you know, Chinese film companies, you know, the internet is kind of a wild, wild west kind of thing in, 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 in China. And you get a lot of uh, information, a lot of rumors getting spread around. And Huayi Brothers, the big, large, large film conglomerate in China, is going after one of those uh, uh, users. Um, according to the uh, suit that was filed in Beijing, uh, Beijing court, um, the company uh, alleged that um, Weibo account called AD1874, and he is one of those... Um, what we call we media so essentially a um a self-regulate or a self asian cinema is kind of a we media right uh it's a one-man media organization or entity um essentially um a K- what we call kol i guess in, in in hong kong right key opinion leader mm. um uh and in november or last october uh he wrote that hua yi is using his influence in the uh state administration of film radio television and film to push the release dates of two hollywood films so that it could get more screens for its film um i am not madame bovary uh with no evidence by the way i mean there's no evidence that hawaii brothers make that call it's just something that you he wrote on a weibo weibo post and it got spread over a thousand times and he said he he made that accusation again in november so why you brothers is going after him uh taking him to you know taking this anonymous user to court uh essentially what is demanding is that um Sina, the company that runs weibo that owns weibo released the real identity of the user uh his real name his address his phone number all to hawaii brothers and they also demand that Sina uh, put a official apology on its homepage for 30 days. Now, what does that mean? I mean, internet is supposed to be a place for free speech, right? I mean, except for China, um, it's supposed to be a place for mostly most of the world for free, free speech. Of course, free speech does have its limits in most places. You can't, um, you know, there is such, you know, there are libel laws, and you can't spread malicious rumors, untrue rumors around. You do have to, you, you know, it's not come hundred percent free because, you know, there are people who take that that who abuse that right. Now, the question is, you know, whether companies do have the right to go after internet users for for you know such things. Um, so it kind of. It's kind of these big entities, big companies putting us in check, us internet, small potatoes in check, right? Like, you guys better watch what you say about it. We are watching. We are watching kind of thing, right? Um, so it's interesting. You know, it's not only government that's limiting free speech on the internet. And, of course, again, you know, libel, there are people who sue for libel all the time. There are people who sue for this kind of thing all the time. So it's not exactly a unique thing in China, but it's interesting to see how, you know, it's always interesting to see interesting to see how big you know people with power you know try to you know deal with the the constant the consistently changing landscape of the internet and how people use the internet so um there's something to watch 
All right. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. So thank you, Mr. Ma, for your excellent reportage. Let us take a short musical break, and we'll be back with Kevin's review of Dee Dee's Dream. And welcome back. Up first for our e-screen review, Kevin has a take on the film Didi's Dream. So yeah, this, the film this week is called Didi Stream or Didi Streams. I forget. Sorry. Oh, there's also quote marks around Didi, but whatever. Um, this is the directorial debut of Kevin Tsai. Uh, if you follow Taiwan showbiz, uh, uh, there's Chai Tsai Tsai Yong Khan, I think. Yeah, Tsai Hong. Sorry, Tsai Kan Yong. Uh, who is a very very popular talk show host, and I'll give the the, the more of a you know more more um, subtext or the context of the film later on. But anyway, this is the directorial debut of Kevin Sai, and it stars Di Shu, who is Barbie Shu's little sister. Uh, Barbie Shu, by the way, where has she been? Apparently, she's retired from acting. Have you noticed that, Paul? You yeah, haven't seen her. We haven't, haven't seen, seen her, her in a long for a time. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, she's retired from acting. So anyway, this Di Shu now she because, just got married and taking time off to have kids first, or. I think that's why she's left. I mean, mm. it's because she got married and have kids, and she just decided to leave the acting altogether. I've read some report this week that she's retired, which is kind of sad because I quite like Barbie Shoe. Um, anyway, Bar- the Barbie and Dee, the, the Shoe sisters, are sort of a power. I wouldn't say power couple, but they're like the power siblings of Taiwan uh, entertainment industry. So there's little sister Dee, who are who is called Little S in Taiwan, and a Barbie is Big S, and there's Little S. Um, uh, her uh, starring in the film, uh, co-stars are Lin Chiling and Jin Shijia. Uh, the story: Shangguan Didi, played by Di Shu, is an aspiring actress who longs to reach the stature of a superstar big sister, Shangguan Ling Ling, played by Lin Chiling. However, the only jobs she can get are in terrible commercials and as barely noticeable extras. When one of her audition videos go viral, she is offered a chance to act opposite her big sister in a major production. However, Ling Ling isn't even Dee Dee's biggest obstacle to completing the role. Uh, so the explanation. Kevin Sai and Dee Shu, they're the co-hosts of uh, Kangxi Laila, which is uh, one of the most popular talk shows in the Chinese-speaking regions. Um, it's supposed to be only airing in Taiwan, but yet the YouTube uh, uh, videos of the shows often get very, very huge hits. I think like up to a million. Um, and they attract some of the biggest stars. Uh, the show ended, I think, a year or two ago. And during its run, Ling Chi Ling somehow became... D shoes target of mocking or criticism. Uh, you know, D has a very um, uh, a scathing sense of humor, and she's very honest and she's very blunt apparently. Um, and Nin Chi Ling is uh, became sort of her rival in a way. So that's why 
Kevin Side decided to cast the two of them as rival sisters. Uh, Lin Chiling did go on the show. She has gone on the show before, and especially even towards the, uh, I think near the end of the the run, Lin Chiling went on the show, and they actually talked about this so-called rivalry. So I guess in real life they're pretty cool with each other. But there's this whole, you know, in the entertainment industry in Taiwan, it's known that these. Dishu and Ling Chiling arrival, so that's why you got this creative casting. Uh, so that's the that's the basic sort of context of the film. Why this film is so popular in Taiwan is because the whole big th- one, this whole thing is one big in joke, right? Um, so the film has a very king of comedy vibe to it. I mean, the Stephen Chow film. It's about a struggling actor and his or her obstacle to become a star, and you know, it, it's about how this this actress who may not be terribly talented and she gets just about you see the worst of the film industry and the worst of the film set behaviors um and that's pretty much the entire film uh sai however adds in a subplot about a sci-fi subplot about a noodle shop in space so dishu also stars in that as a as the noodle shop owner and she's lovelorn and and um you know she gets has a brief fling with this handsome young guy um and then you know she goes she gets brokenhearted and it's supposed to run parallel to this real life story it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense it kind of makes sense at the end but the whole thing feels whimsical for the sake of being so, whimsy. so wait it's 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 not like a role that she's doing it's just a separate story no it is a separate story okay it's it's kind of you can see it, it, they kind of bring out the connection towards the end where that's why you see the, the title dd streams but mm. there, there's a whole point behind it about dreams but it doesn't really say anything of particular importance i think at the end it just feels like um sai you know showing off kind of like well i have an imagination too right i'm just not i'm not just gonna make this king of comedy movie um i want to do something more than that but it doesn't really add up um the film the main the main plot does have some good gags there are a lot of uh it's pretty much a lot of skits connected together there are some pretty good skits about the terrible treatments that these small potatoes get at one point um d plays a zombie that can't die so no matter how many times the actor beats her to the ground she has to get back up um and at one point she auditions for a um home shopping network and she gets this really funny terrible tongue twister that's impossible to say and of course she's turned it into a song and and now it's also viral in YouTube on real life because it's, it's so funny. Um, and you got these kind of gags, and it's pretty good. The first That takes up the t- first two-thirds of the film. Um, despite her limited experience, Dishu is very charming just by pretty much being game to everything that Sai throws at her. Um, and she manages to be better than Lin Chi Ling. Um, although Lin Chi Ling is a pretty bad actress, but she has way more acting experience than Di Shu, and yet Di Shu is much more down to earth and much more likable here, and 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 she actually looks like she's really acting, um, and um, I'm surprised how well she does here, and she pretty much anchors the entire film. Um, the film has a lot of Taiwan showbiz cameos, most of which I didn't catch. There is one done by the because the show has a minion. Um, that shows them in every episode, and they put him in weird costumes in every episode. So the fans of the show, when I watched it in the cinemas here in Hong Kong, um, the fans caught the cameo, and they all really had a good laugh seeing him on screen. Um, so that was cool. Uh, but the third act really drags as it sinks itself into melodrama. I mean, I understand that it's what Kevin Sai, the story that Kevin Sai wants to tell. I don't want to ruin the twist, but you know, it's a really, really melodramatic. It's just about the most melodramatic cliche you can think of. It's Kevin Sai's vision, but 
it really kills the momentum that he had built um, in the first two thirds of the film. Um, by the time it ended, I thought, I mean, the film's only 90 minutes, but by the time it got there, I was I was glad it finally ended. It just dragged on and on. Um, so it's really hard to tell what what Sai wants to be as a director. Um, I think with this first film, it's very much about novelty casting. You know, it's about giving his old co-host a film role and sort of having fun with these, you know, friends of an industry. And he gets to direct the film. You know, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like a one-off project. It seems like something that he only do once because I don't see what he could accomplish as a director in the future. Right now, everything feels too much like novelty. It feels like it's something for his fans, uh, fans of the show, for his fans, for his co-hosts for his buddies um i don't know what kind of what he was trying to accomplish other than doing something post kanshi lila like he's already 50 so i don't know what kind of director he wants to be and i don't think i i would be surprised if he directs another film honestly ever uh, but the film is a major hit in Taiwan, although it did flop in China. And for this kind of budget that he worked on, he really needed that China market, and it flopped in China. So who knows what's going to happen uh, to his directorial career from now on. Um, so needless to say, fans of the show, you know, who don't need any of the stuff that I talked about, you know, explanations I gave. Sorry, I mansplained it. Um, fans of so fans of the show, of course, they will definitely see it. And friends of fans of Taiwan showbiz. Of course, they should all take a look. But I think for the rest of us who, you know, other than maybe if you're like a fan of Barbie and you want to see what her sister does, maybe. But otherwise, I don't think it's really worth watching. I was quite disappointed because, you know, I, it was so successful. It was so successful in Taiwan. I mean, it's not like a huge record-breaking hit, but considering how badly the Taiwan film industry has done this year, it's done pretty well for it, um, considering that. And I took a look and I thought I was a bit disappointed at, you know, that's what you know, for what he managed to do here. Maybe there are more in-jokes that I didn't get. Maybe it's just not my kind of film. But, you know, if it's not my kind of film and I get the subtext for most of the stuff, that means that, you know, most of you won't will get even less. So there's less, even less reason to see it. So I would say skip it for the rest of the, you know, for the non-Taiwan showbiz fans out there. And welcome back. So for our West Green review of The Mummy, uh, despite my uh, better <laughs> judgment, I did get out to watch this film. Uh, and this is coming from director Alex Kurtzman. Now, if you're familiar with the kind of work he does, he's primarily a writer-producer. Um, and you can go through and look through a lot of his, uh, his filmography. And you'll see, you know, he's had his hands in quite a few things over the years, going all the way back to stuff like The Island... Uh, some of the Transformers films, uh, some of the Star Trek properties. He's, I think he's producing on the current coming Star Trek series with uh, Michelle Yeoh. Um, and he's also been involved with other TV stuff like Sleepy Hollow. So he's kind of all over the place. This is his second uh, film where he's 
kind of helmed as a director. And, you know, I think that maybe part of the problem starts there is that as somebody who's, you know, all over the place doing so many things, um, maybe not having enough focus in any single specific area um, might be at, at the root of what's going perhaps wrong with this film. But let me get a, a little bit into the story itself. So when a fortune-seeking soldier named Nick Morton, played by Tom Cruise, accidentally uncovers an ancient burial site, he awakens an immortal Egyptian queen, Queen Amenet, um, played by Sofia Botella. Now, magically bound to her, he finds himself on the run from both her and a secret society wishing to use him to end her evil power. Um, so th there you have the story. Again, the cast, Tom Cruise, um, Annabelle Wallace is here kind of as a, as a researcher slash love interest. I mentioned Sophia Botella and Jake Johnson also here, um, to throw some comic relief in at times. Um, but that also becomes very problematic and I'll, and I'll touch on this, um, overall. Now this film's doing terrible in terms of some of the rating systems out there. I think it's like around 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I wouldn't say it's that bad, but, uh, you know, it should have been called the Memmy because it's really just meh. Um, and to be fair, I am on record before saying I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. Um, these days, if Tom Cruise is starring in something, probably not going to see it unless it's got some sci-fi attached to it. I haven't seen, I think, the last couple Mission Impossible films, have not seen the Jack Reacher stuff. I think the last Cruise thing I saw was, um... Which came late last, Age of Tomorrow or Oblivion? Whichever one of those, I've seen both of those. So he's just not a big draw for me. Um, he tends not to have enough diversity in terms of his screen presence. A lot of times it just seems like he's playing Tom Cruise or a variation of his Mission Impossible 3, 2, 1 character. Uh, did not really care about anybody in this movie. And that's part of the, the overall problem I think that audiences will have. Because his character here, he's playing this kind of roguish fortune-seeking soldier he's somewhere between a i don't know uh, half indiana jones and and half you know uh han solo and half something else but he's just not very likable um the the way that he ends up coming off uh he's and the other characters by proxy end up not being very likable as well He's very sort of self-interested, and everybody else seems to be kind of self-interested too. And even the romance they try and spring up between him and Annabelle Wallace doesn't feel very organic or genuine, um, even even by the end when there's kind of this big emotional moment that happens. Um, so I didn't really care about anybody in this movie, um, not really at all. And I think part of the other re reason for that is, as I said, none of the characters really feel like they care about each other. Um, and so there's a, there's a scene early on where uh, his friend, played by Jake Johnson, uh, they're in the tomb, and suddenly all these huge Middle Eastern spiders start crawling about, and, um, his, and, and the Jake Johnson character gets bitten on the neck by one of them, and he's like, you know, ow, you know. And then a little bit later, you know, he's getting sick, and his skin's starting to change color, and nobody's saying anything. You know, the, the Tom Cruise character is supposed to be his best friend. He's just like, you know, not even saying, oh, are you okay? Do you need a doctor? You know, what's going on? You would think that if you had a care about somebody or a partner or somebody you're working with, 
you know, and, and you see them get bit by this huge thing, that you would show some reaction to that rather than no reaction that's, you know, um, like, oh, sleep it off or something. Um, so th there's just no sense of connection with a lot of these characters. Now, this film is trying to be the start of this whole dark universe thing. And this is, this is the thing we were talking about with Godzilla in the news section and, you know, of course, with the DC and the Marvel. Um, this is, I guess, its attempt to uh, try and build their own universe right um, with the classic monsters and as a start again really kind of a meh opening I mean it doesn't mean they can't pick up steam pick up momentum but they're not off to a good start with this film and I think my biggest problem with this film overall is that the writers and filmmakers themselves deserve to be cursed with a terrible mummy's curse because they steal a bit right out of a much better gothic horror movie that was done in the early 80s. And if you want to know what that movie is, it'll spoil it a little bit, but it's, you know, it's that movie where a certain American goes over to the UK and he gets bitten by something and he starts to change into something else, and you know what I'm talking about. And so they take a comedic bit out of that and they apply it here. It is not an homage, okay? It's not, especially when it's not done well and it's not done funny. It is just out-and-out out plagiarism of a bit. And if you can't be original, if you can't come up with anything original for your main characters other than stealing a bit out of an earlier film, you, you're going to have problems uh, right off the get-go. Now, maybe they're thinking, oh, you know, this we're, we're targeting young people and they won't have seen that film. And, and you know, again, we're, you know, trying to trying to make connections to old monster movies and things. And it's, it's not an excuse in my book. It's just, you know, a lack of originality, a lack of creativity. So that part really kind of infuriated me as I, as I was sitting in the cinema. This whole concept of trying to bring in a monster, bring in monsters together in the same universe, it's been done. I mean, they did it going all the way back to the original Gothic monsters with the um, Abbott and Costello films, for example, um, but even more lately with things like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in 2003, um, the Underworld series, um, also I think around 2003, and even much more recently with stuff like, you know, TV shows like Sanctuary or Penny Dreadful, where, you know, they're bringing in monster variants and, and having them, you know, interact and work together. So it's kind of a little bit late for them to get on board with, I think, this whole Dark Universe thing. And if they're going to go at it at this level, I think it's going to be a hard sell um, going forward. Now, that being said, again, this film's not completely terrible. Um, I did really like the portrayal of the mummy here, the actress, uh, Sophia Butella, who I think you may have last seen her in Star Trek Beyond um, as Jayla, the scavenger alien. She had a lot of makeup on. Uh, here she has some makeup on in various scenes. She gets to do a lot of physical acting. At least I assume it's her and, and not, not a stunt double um, for some of the scenes. Some of the scenes, it's obviously somebody doing some motion capture, but they kind of blend in some of her movements. There, Some of it's a little bit ring-esque at times, but I think they really do a nice job of having her portray um, the, this, the, this mummy character uh, as other... Reviews I've read have pointed out to it's nice that they did a little bit of gender reversal here, uh, making it into a queen rather than a pharaoh, um, and, and that's fine. And, and really, if there was a character that I enjoyed above all the others, it was her character. I would have liked to have seen more 
gotten more of her backstory. I think they could have maybe done a little bit more in terms of development or what they show us overall. But as the representation of a mummy as a, as a big bad, I think she was good. She was fine. Um, they do throw some visual homages again back to the the original mummy itself uh the remake mummy i would say with uh, brendan fraser and this film shares some things in common with i'd say the dc universe cinematic universe films in that it's still very washed out very gray looking and i guess they figured that's appropriate because they're going for this dark universe sort of gothic look but it really feels like it's part of the dc cinematic universe i mean having just come off seeing wonder woman it's like, wow, this film looks like it's set in the same place as Wonder Woman and Man of Steel. And that's, I think, also something that sets it apart from the Brendan Fraser version of The Mummy, where that film was, I think, a bit more colorful. It was certainly more comedic and had a greater sense of fun. And I know they're not really going for a sense of fun here, but they do try and give Tom Cruise some comedy uh, through some of his dialogue and, and some of his behavior. Um, throughout it doesn't it I just don't think he carries it as well as somebody like um, Brendan Fraser does so the other interesting thing too is you have Russell Crowe here if you go and you look up him on IMDb you're going to be spoiled I'm not going to say anything more about him here because he plays a significant character who's supposed to be as I've read the series anchor for this sort of dark universe so I guess he's going to show up in kind of all of the films which kind of interesting, and I did like, you know, his portrayal and what they're kind of doing with him here. But he's not really, there's not enough here to give it, him a lot of depth. Um, so I think there's more that they could have shown us. There's more that they could have done. Um, and so, yeah, this this whole thing is here to set up this dark universe. The other problem is that the next the next version or the, the next uh, extension of this dark universe is set to be The Bride of Frankenstein, which I think, um, I forget who's directing that, but Alex Kurtzman is producing it. And he might be writing it as well. And that's set for 2019. So we've got a two-year gap before we get the next sort of extension of this universe. That feels like a long wait. Um, feels like, will people even care uh, two years down the road? I mean, the one thing that Marvel has been doing, whether you like it or not, is that they've been in your face with movies, you know, every year at least, to if not every six months, um, going back to, you know, the, the start with starting with Iron Man, right? So to have uh, this film come out, maybe not do so well, if it does well enough that they do decide to go through with the rest of this, then two years later, you've got the next installment, and people are like, well, it's kind of been a while. I don't know if I'm still that invested. It does give them some time to maybe rethink it, to tweak it, to try and, and pump it up a little bit more. But I just, you know, wonder if, if that's, if they're really going for this whole universe building thing. And it looks like they've got quite a lot of movies lined up. You've got things like The Invisible Man. You've got uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera in there. You've got Creature from the Black Lagoon in there. A lot of stuff that they're going to be going for. Um, and it's, you know, if you're going to be spreading this out over such long periods, I just don't know if it's going to hold the interest of people all that much, um, especially when, you know, start right at the, right at the get-go. It's kind of very lukewarm. 
as a start. Again, if you're somebody who really likes Tom Cruise, you like to see him in big, splody action movies, um, you know, this is an okay matinee, I would say. You know, you definitely know, don't need to see this in 3D. A lot of it's quite dark at times, uh, stuff happening at night. So really, I just kind of felt feel that if you're somebody who enjoys 3D at all, it's going to be hard to see a lot of the, the stuff anyway. It's visually okay. I mean, you've got the mummy and you've got other mummies and monsters and things, and it bounces. Primarily, everything's taking place in the UK, um, although it does kind of start out in the desert, obviously. But uh, beyond that, visually, it's not it's not super great. Um, you know, you're not looking at beautiful sweeping vistas. There do seem to be a couple moments where they're kind of shoving stuff out at the screen, but primarily it just doesn't seem like it's super geared for the 3D experience. But if you are interested in the gothic monsters at all, it's still kind of, again, worth a matinee, worth sitting down and going through as a popcorn movie. Um, or, you know, again, if you're not that into it, you're not that into Tom Cruise, but you are kind of interested in that they're going to be building this and they do decide to go through it, you can probably wait for video for this one. Kevin, you have not seen this. Any plans to maybe see it at some point? I, I will see it eventually. I mean, I, I'm actually kind of a fan of Tom Cruise's films. Not the not particularly the actor itself. I, I like watching his films. And I like seeing him in films. Um, but I'm not into horror films on mm. big screen. Yeah. So so I will probably wait for uh, iTunes or if I have to write about it, then maybe a screener eventually. But um, yeah, you know, I, I like to bring up uh, uh, interesting thing. Uh, so there's a screenwriting team, um, Terry Ross, Rossio and Ted Elliott. They wrote um, Aladdin, they wrote Shrek, they wrote Master of Zorro, and then they wrote the, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And then they also wrote The, the Lone Ranger, which, as bloated as it is, is quite fun, I thought. And then you have Alex Kurtzman, whose writing partner is Roberto Orci, and they wrote The Legend of Zorro, which was actually taken over from Terry Rossio and, uh, and Ted Elliott. And then they went on to write the first three Transformers movies mm -hmm. and the Star Trek movies and the Amazing Spider-Man 2. So I like to call them the the, the poor man's version of Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was a long time to set up the punchline. But but yes, so I never really had much faith in Alex Kurtzman's work, unfortunately. And um, it seems like this is the case of whether, you know, probably is probably not worth, again, not worth looking forward to. You know, Alex Kurtzman's work. Yeah, well, I mean, he, I mean, he's been he's he's worked on stuff that I've liked. I mean, going back to like TV stuff back in the '90s, Hercules and Xena, uh, Jack of all trades. I I liked that stuff. He did a bit bit of work on the Fringe TV series on Hawaii Five O, and you know, so if this feels if this movie feels like a TV movie of the week, maybe that's part of the reason. It 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 tries to be big. It tries to be splody splody, but um, it. It's just something about it. And again, he's coming on here as as director. I, again, this is his second directorial feature, I believe, but also writer and producer. And he's still doing a lot of work on other stuff concurrently. Like I said, he's working on Star Trek Discovery. Um, I think he was, um, um, you know, he was producing for uh, Now You See Me 2, and, uh, you know, again, going back to 
uh, earlier stuff. He's continuing to work on the Sleepy Hollow TV series, which I guess is still running um, as a co-writer, executive producer. So I just kind of get the sense that, you know, he's maybe in a position where he's got a lot of clout and can get stuff done, but not a lot of focus, maybe. I don't know. Uh, that's just, this film doesn't feel like it has uh, quite a, quite as much focus as it as it needs. It certainly doesn't feel as original or create, um, you know, creatively unique as it could have been, um, because again, they're just tapping into an existing property and then again the thing that really angered me just borrowing um stuff that they probably shouldn't have borrowed that they could have you know just done something completely different and been more original with it um so laziness i guess it's just a lazy film in in a lot of ways but it's so weird this film so i'm looking at the wikipedia page this film has a total of one two three four five writers including david coep who wrote freaking jurassic park you know, it's one of the greatest commercial blockbuster Hollywood writers around. Jenny Lumet, who is the, the daughter of Sydney freaking Lumet, you know, Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. And Kirsten McCorry, who is sort of Tom Cruise's um, uh, partner in crime. Is, you know, he's been working a, a lot with Kirsten McCorry. He's brought him on for all the, the rewrites of all his films. And, of course, he did um, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And and also uh, they're also working on Six Together. And, of course, they also worked on Valkyrie. So, you know, Tom Cruise trusts this guy. So he brought, you know, brought all this talent. And it just sounds like they didn't read. They, they kept trying to write their way out of a film that I guess just wasn't meant to be good. Mm. It seems like they tried their best, but it just seems like it wasn't going to it was misconceived in the first place. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jaboer of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us over on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? You can uh, read my uh, new site, asiainsinema.com. Uh, that's Asia in cinema. Uh, please do follow the uh, Facebook page and the Twitter accounts as there are sometimes news that only posts on the social media accounts. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, a Golden Rock. Um, oh, Asia in cinema. I've run a, uh, an interview with director Ho Yu Han, who directed Kara Wai in, uh, or Kara Hui in Mrs. K recently or last year. Um, so it's an interview that I did with him in Osaka uh, back in in March, and it's finally online. He talks about his cinematic influences and working with Kara and things like that. So go ahead and check out that interview. Uh, you can also read my work on Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazines on Cathay Pacific Airways and Cathay Dragon Airlines. Um, you can also read the digital version of the magazine. Uh, it's at uh, discovery.cathaypacific.com or cathaypacific.com slash discovery. 
you can email me at kevin at asiainsinema.com. Okay, excellent. And as always, please do check out our friends over at Podcast on Fire Network and all the good work that they are doing. Our next show, episode 231, what would you be looking at for East Screen? Next week, we'll be looking at the new Gordon Chan film, God of War, starring uh, Vincent Zhao and Sammo Hong. Yes. So back to Hong Kong. Back to Hong Finally. Kong, indeed. And I think I'll be getting out to see Cars 3, which um, I'm actually kind of looking forward to based on the trailers that they've put out there so far. I know that um, Cars is not one of the better received uh, Pixar series, Pixar Disney series, especially after Cars 2. Um, but that's on my docket for this week. So we'll have all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, if you're in the typhoon, please stay dry and stay safe. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.